This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Paradox of Choice. William Stukely. The BBC's Missing Horror Show. And the Cabbage Town Tunnel Monster. Okay, Ken, we've been summoned, I mean, invited, to attend another gloriously gloomy party at Castle Slogar. Remember, keep your eyes peeled and your reflexes ready. The Slogar's festering festivity involves more cleavers than confetti. Where did everyone disappear to? Did they all get ludicrously lost in the hedge maze again? I think I heard muffled laughter, or was that sobbing? It's coming from behind that door. Of course it's locked. Just our luck. Hold your skeletal horses, Ken. Look at the floor. The tiles have markings, just like in that puzzle game book I have. Unhappy birthday at Castle Slogar. Aha, found the book. How will a book about a birthday gone wrong help us find a party that might not even exist? Well, in Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar, things go awfully awry during Melissa Slogar's latest ninth birthday party. Guests are lost and Lord Slogar is missing. Sound familiar? Whoa, that's eerily similar. Wait, the book has a map. Oh, but it's blank. How do we navigate with that? Patience, Ken. The book describes each room and the exquisitely eerie obstacles you have to overcome. You can even use a special website to check your answers, get hints, and unveil the map as you explore. So we need to solve a puzzle in this room to get to the party in the next room. You're catching on now. Let's see. I remember the foyer puzzle involved. And then you... And just my... And voila! Look, the password! And the door! It's unlocked! Now let's go party like it's 1899! Hey, uh, can I borrow that puzzle game book? No way! It's mine! But you can get your own copy of Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar from Atlas Games at atlas-games.com slash b-d-a-y. The rattle of dice and chits, the thump of miniatures and scrape of cardboard standees, the crunch of Doritos and the different crunch of pretzels. And both sides of Peter Frampton's big double album coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But through which door? The door to the stairs or the door to the rec room? Who can say? Because, Robin, players love choices. Or rather, they love them in their mouths. They less (laughs) love them in their hearts and brains. There's a paradox of choice, Ken. Exactly. And it's not so much a paradox of choice. It's a what what shall i say it's an eyes bigger than a stomach it's a heart is different from the brain it's a human condition it's it's a paradox if you're the scenario designer trying to make them happy <laughs> right yeah well that's a different paradox so the 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 situation is that players say that they are in role playing games to make choices and engage in freedom and all kinds of actions but if you give them a choice say a or b they will say what about both And also, they hate trade-offs, which is sort of the whole point of choices. So, what are they talking about, Robin? How can we make them happy? What do they mean? Is it just a matter of slamming your patent-style writing crop down on the table and saying, get with the program, north or south, or is there more to it? Well, uh, this is an unresolved paradox, and I think it is a a real challenge that scenario writers have. And as scenario writers get feedback from playtesters, they will often hear people uh, voice disappointment. For example, if and, and I try to write scenarios with meaningful choices where you do one thing and not the other thing. Mm. To my mind, that is the meaningful choice. You could argue that just the order you do things in is a meaningful choice, but then the scenario writer has to look at both of the scenes. So uh, let's say that uh, you uh, have a choice. You know that there's two leads. You can go talk to the, the janitor who works at the, uh, at the Lyceum, or you can go off to the observatory. And both of those will basically convey the same information, but in a different flavored way, and perhaps with other 
additional side consequences. The players, however, go, well, there's a janitor to talk to and an observatory to go to. We've got to do both. And sometimes I will get plate test feedback. It's like, well, there are all these choices of people to talk to in the village before we go into the jungle, but it doesn't give them the chance to talk to every single person in the village. And the whole point of that, from my point of view, is that who you decide to talk to in the limited amount of time before you go to the jungle defines your characters. And even that is a trade-off, right? That deciding if you've got a limited amount of time and you can talk to the librarian or the major, that says something about you and it says about what you value. And so again, that brings up the question, if you only go, well, okay, they're going to want to do every scene I give them anyway. Let's just only have the librarian to talk to. The feedback will be, we wanted more people to talk to. There was only the librarian. We were railroaded. And if if it's the other one, it's like, well, they didn't get to talk to the major. They missed out all the scenes with the major. And in a published scenario, it means missing a block of text. So this is something I bring up not really knowing how to resolve or even uh, manage expectations for. So, Ken, it's up to you to resolve this. Well, I mean, part of the resolution, in my experience, comes from a role-playing group. And if my group has a major and a librarian to talk to or an observatory and a lyceum to go to, that's when they split up Justice League style. You know, two of the characters will go talk to the librarian and two of the characters will go talk to the major. Or so the only league. choice there is who goes to talk to who. Well, that's easy. And it's still both essentially you are saying to the players, you've got to do all the scenes and you've got to write all the scenes so that something interesting and different happens in both. Well, I mean, if you've written a scene where nothing interesting happens, cut that scene. I can't right, believe but, I'm having but, to tell but you you're that. you're choosing between things, right? Are right. you choosing or are you doing everything? Right. The paradox. Well, in, in, a, in a game group, they will do as much stuff, in my experience, my game group will do as much stuff as they possibly can. They will spread out because they know that my ocean of clues is full of uh, manatees and they will drain it for every manatee they can get to. And that's just the way my player group is. Other player groups may be more disciplined. They may, you know, have a sense of looming time that my player group is blissfully immune to. However, it works. But at some level, I mean, this is in a sort of a roundabout way. This comes back to the whole point of providing art and especially this art is to provide a jumping off point for the experiencer, not provide, you know, the, that movie didn't explain everything. Well, of course not. It's a movie. You're supposed to bring something to it. The painting didn't say that it was uh, sad. It's well, no, you're supposed to have that. That's your job as the person doing the art. And so at some level, short of going back and raising them more correctly in, in art class in grade school, there isn't anything you can do about people who complain about obvious things except say, well, they mean well and they're good people and I'm sure that they'll still have fun with it. The way to design a scenario in my either just, you know, ad hoc at the table or for publication is to create something that provides exactly that. Oh my God, I can't believe I don't get all of this. You should always feel like there's more juice left in the orange at the end of the game because that's how they know, oh, I, I, I did that right. That was, that was great fun. Either at the table, that world is bigger than just the confines of the scenario, because we know there was an observatory full of cool stuff we didn't get to. Right. Or, so is the uh, feedback that says, I was disappointed that they didn't get to talk to everybody, is that the equivalent of, your movie was so good, I wish it was longer? Exactly. This movie should have been a 10-episode Netflix show. And ignore Accept that. Accept the compliment and ignore the idiocy. That's right. my statement. Okay. And so presumably then the expectations management for that in the scenario, which is something I do, this is my solution, uh -huh. is to say, do not expect your players to do every scene. The whole point of this is they make their story by choosing which scenes they interact with. Yeah. Most scenarios either converge toward a single climax that the scenario writer provides, or mm -hmm. as is the case in a bunch of mine, it will give you the investigative part and say, here's five or six bullet points of things that players could possibly do to resolve this and be ready for any of them. And again, that's uh, there's another paradox with that in that if you give people extensive guidance and specific scenes to play, they will say, well, this was too specific. And then if you go, here's a bunch of options, I go, this is too sandboxy. We need more guidance. And so 
again, I think this is just stuff that goes with the territory of getting feedback and the uh, idea that you can successfully meet every expectation is, I, I guess, the same as the expectation that you can talk to the librarian and the major and then go to the Lyceum and also the observatory. Yeah, I mean, the the nature of creating, I mean, th- to pull this way back, the nature of creating art is to create art for potentially more people than your immediate narrow cast one person who gets an audience. You know, not your muse, your cousin Theo isn't the only person who's going to see these sunflowers. Everyone's going to see these sunflowers. They're going to bring their own stuff to it. And that's just the way the universe works. And in the sort of sense of, you know, bringing it back down to player choice, this is, you know, part of what role-playing exists to address is this desire to do more than you can in your normal life. Whether do more merely means have a really cool sword and stab anyone that you uh, want their stuff, or do more in the sense of experience a life that you don't experience because you yourself are not a cool vampire hunter or a cool vampire or whatever. And so this core desire to, to do more than you can is the desire that we, you know, aim to address in role-playing games. And so the fact that it is going to predictably, I think both at the table and as a designer to an audience overspill in the moment is I think sort of, you know, inevitable and maybe even to be welcomed that what you don't want is uh, the other thing you were saying, Oh, this feels railroady. This felt like there was nothing else on the page. This felt like it was just a, a, a narrow dungeon with a, with an orc at the end. And we could have stayed at home and done this in Diablo. I, I feel like you want a world that feels rich and strange and that you didn't get all the time with. And that right. I, I think that's a, that's a, I mean, again, look at everything I've written. Clearly I am not one of those people who believes in minimalist story design. So it just strikes me that that's, that that's the actual appetite we're seeking to engender and somewhat assuage. Right. So if they want to have, feel that they have a choice of paths, but their actual path they pick is all of them. Mm-hmm. And that's the illusion of choice, but that makes them happy, mostly. And your challenge there is to write the scenario so that they will be able to move through it if they surprise you by not going to talk to the janitor. But if they choose both, mm-hmm. to have ways for that to be rich and interesting and not totally duplicative for both players and both yeah. once they uh, split up. The next thing we just sort of breezed over so far is the idea that players also hate difficult choices. Right. Yeah. They hate trade-offs. They hate trade-offs where each choice has a cost. And that is uh, another challenge. It's like, uh, so the, I guess the real question is when players say that they want choices, what do they actually mean? Are they, do they just mean I want to feel that I could have skipped? A or B when we did A and B like we always do, like everybody always does? Or is there something else that they are asking for? And I, I, I have my answer for that, but what's yours? My answer is that when they say they want choices, what they want is what I've said, that feeling like the world is big and rich and organic, that they could go to the Lyceum or the observatory or the library or the military barracks, and something would happen at all those places, that there's a reason they're doing this at the table with their friends or online with their friends instead of just playing a uh, Baldur's Gate uh, or something else that someone has ground out in Seattle and, and fed them a bunch of cutscenes that they want those, that the, the human interaction and the possibility of a bigger world, they maybe want to see the DM sweat a little bit, uh, which is again, human. And I guess we should not uh, condemn it at all. And then players saying that they, want choices, but they hate trade-offs. That's just people being human and lazy again. And that is down to what is the game actually about? If the game is purely power fantasy, don't make them have trade-offs or make them have the easiest, most obvious trade-offs. Well, you can either help out the princess or you can give up all your belongings and become a impoverished monk. And it's like, well, of course we're going to help the princess. That wasn't a real choice, but it was the illusion of choice. But in a game that is a horror game or a game that is explicitly about political consequences like unknown armies or vampire, then yeah, the hard choice is part of the game and the players will complain about it because just as you know, their characters are complaining about it, one assumes. And so 
that's just, you know, the, the good kind of bleed. It's the player feeling the frustration of the character, which in theory, because you're playing a game about those kind of choices and consequences and payoffs is what you're all there for. And as long as everyone remembers that that's what you're there for and you, the GM can signal the nature of the game throughout the game. And ideally you're doing that by playing it. Then that just becomes the sort of good natured kvetching like you get if you've all gone to, you know, work out together and then you complain about how tired your arms are. Right. Although it, it becomes more than good natured kvetching if they just decide not to go to talk to the, <laughs> to the dwarf king. Yeah. Well, that's, that's them making a choice, right? The dwarf king will ask us for things in addition to our favor. So the, I'm going to briefly pause to say a thing that I always say, which is that one of the big differences between a scenario design and uh, the works of fiction that it is uh, sort of emulating is that in fiction, characters don't have choice. The whole point of almost all narrative is to create the feeling of inevitability where you are seeing the character making the choice that they have to make at each time. And as they go through the narrative, choices are stripped away from them. They can't just go off on a side mission and uh, still complete the, the narrative. And that's, I think, just one of the big structural differences between the forms. Uh, what I think people actually want when they say they want choice, or rather what they're complaining about when they say the scenario didn't give them choice, was they want the chance to do their thing. And they want this to feel that that was built into the scenario for them to do their thing. And also that they decided to do it, which is another, that's a similar sort of taking A and B, but, and of course what their thing is differs wildly from player to player. And even sometimes with the same player from evening to evening. And that's what the Robin's laws player types are all about is figuring out what your thing is. So if the person who always wants to hit something with their ax if they don't have the option to do that uh, at the Lyceum or the observatory, and it's weird that you're taking an axe to either of those places, you want to either have an avenue where the GM can see in your scenario where to have them go hit somebody with an axe or actually build that in. And uh, this, of course, is another challenge of scenario writing because you don't know what the thing is of each individual person. And uh, this is why you want to build in sort of areas into a scenario where they can just sort of faff about and do player directed things when presumably they have the power to do their thing and will then do it in that space. Yeah. And this is something where the, the scenario designer really, their job is to leave hooks and, and, and branches and spots for the table GM, because they know that uh, Steve always wants to hit stuff with his ax and that this part of the scenario is a bunch of talking to people. And so the GM is going to say, all right, uh, well, as you head out to the Lyceum, uh, you notice that there's a couple of shifty looking guys hanging out in front of the Lyceum. And they're like, you can't go to this Lyceum, punk. How dare you? And that's when Steve says, ha ha, dare I indeed, and hits them with his axe. Steve has had a great time. Everyone gets to the Lyceum. You did not put guards on the Lyceum in the scenario because you're not a crazy person putting guards in front of the answer. But the GM at the table says, Steve can take these mooks. Uh, it'll be good for everybody. We'll have some fun. And we'll know that this is an important question we're asking at the Lyceum, not just another version of, you know, which color key do we use? Like you might see in lesser scenarios, not by Robin. And as being keys, I have a key to a whole different HUD, which I'm going to have to uh, we'll listen to this exciting commercial and then we'll use it to open that other HUD. Green Press invites you to a reality-shattered masked ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoch Terror. A Casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, 
which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home, reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-matched minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin, Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. The wearing of piff helmets and the swinging of pickaxes tell us we're once more in the antiquarian confines of the archaeology hut. But this time around, we have big curly long wigs under our piff helmets because we're going to look at uh, someone who is credited as one of the foundational figures of the science of archaeology, and this is the 18th century polymath William Stukeley, who was a, a doctor. He was also a pioneering seismologist, but he's come down in history for his importance, uh, particularly in looking at uh, British standing stones and trying to figure out what was going on there. What he figured out was going on there, you know, that hasn't stood the test of time, but some of the methods or the intellectual approach that he established toward them did create the foundation for archaeology as we know it. So, Ken, take us to Lincolnshire in 1687 and the birth of William Stukeley. Well, that is indeed where and when William Stukeley was born. He's the son of a lawyer. His dad probably wanted him to be a lawyer, but he was more interested in natural philosophy, science, and uh, maybe what we would call pre-med was sort of what his courses at Cambridge looked like, because he then leaves Cambridge to go study medicine in London. Doesn't leave Cambridge. He graduates. To the disappointment of his father, he became a doctor. He became a doctor, exactly. Moves back to the town of Boston and Lincolnshire to become a doctor, and from that vantage point begins to take sort of architectural and naturalist tours around England. He is still, uh, part of the thing that attracted him to being a doctor was all the drawing because you had to draw all of your anatomy studies, and he was a very good draftsman. And so he got into architecture, and as he's touring around, he's stopping off at various antiquarian sites as well, such as the Rollwright Stones in Oxford, and it is at one of these sites that he meets the lawyer and antiquary Maurice Johnson, who lives in the nearby town of Spalding and has a little antiquary club, and Maurice Johnson seems to be the guy that history pills him because he writes to Maurice Johnson and Maurice Johnson sends him like six books to study, to learn all about British history. And this gets him sort of hyped up for that. He builds a model of Stonehenge in 1716. So we know that he's gone to Stonehenge before that. He then moves to London in 1717. Uh, he sort of had to sort out some family business with his father's death and then his mother's death. But he uh, straightens out that situation financially, moves back to London, joins the Royal Society and the Society of Antiquaries in 1718, and becomes buddies with Isaac Newton. And one of his lectures at the Royal Society is on a fossil plesiosaur that was found somewhere in the middle of Britain. And people are saying, what is this weird crocodile porpoise doing in Britain? And Stukeley's answer is, I don't know, you ever heard of a little thing called the Flood of Noah? Jerks. And that's his lecture on the fossil plesiosaur. And if you sort of take that as the model of Stukeley's intellect, that he is an absolutely sound observer of what's before him, he doesn't lie or make stuff up about that, but he puts it into a worldview that is very informed, basically, by this notion of British revealed religion. And those two sides of his being they don't fight, they coexist happily for basically his whole life. Right, and it's he's partaking of the normative belief structure of the time. There were other, yeah. you know, deists and stuff would disagree with him, and he would disagree strongly with them, and more so at nearer the end of his career, but right. this was not 
a weird eccentric position to come to. This was the, the baseline position at the time. Yeah. And this is as science and faith are intertwined. They, they have yet to separate. And, and they so, exist to inform each other is right. even more to the point. The reason God left that fossil there was so that we could then deduce the truth of the flood from it, not so that it would cause atheism and wrong think. Right. That's, and the text of the Bible is as much scientific evidence as the bones of the Plesiosaur. Yes, and it is certainly historical evidence. So anyway, he visits Avebury, which is a big, even bigger than Stonehenge Standing Stone Complex in Wiltshire, just south of Stonehenge, basically. He visits there in 1718 and 19. He gets his MD finally in 1719. He's been very busy with Plesiosaurs and whatnot. One of his fun Royal Society activities is to autopsy an elephant. They've got a dead elephant, I guess, from a circus, and they cut it up in Hans Sloan's garden. Uh, you may recall the Sloan Museum, but back before it was a museum, it was a place where you'd cut up an elephant for fun. Yes. So he's part of a whole community of people who are pooling their knowledge and figuring out what's going on. And the amount of revealed scientific knowledge is small enough that everybody's kind of interested in everything. And so that's uh, why we're talking about him as a, as a polymath. And he's right. uh, looking at standing stones and elephants and earthquakes and religious all sorts of other things. Right. And the spleen, that's his medical speciality is, is spleening. Uh, he becomes a Freemason in 1721, which is very, very early in the Orthodox history of Freemasonry. Of course, people will make up pretend Freemasonry about a century earlier, but actual Freemasonry in England doesn't begin much earlier than 1721. Right. And as far as we know, this was the rationalist strain of Freemasonry, not the more mystical occult one that you would have seen in France. Yeah, this was because he was a respectable middle-class person who was interested in science, but believed in God, and you became a Freemason. And he then establishes his own society called the Society of Roman Knights, because he feels like Roman history is getting short shrift in Britain. And so the Society of Roman Knights is all about studying Roman antiquities. Right. But you throw in the word knights, so it still sounds attractively British. So it sounds cool and fun and fraternal. Yep. Although there are boy knights and girl knights. He accepts women into his Society of Roman Knights. So he's a free thinker on that question. He's 200 years early doing that. Yeah. Other leading societies do not accept women for centuries. Yeah. So he, he adopts the lodge name of a Kindonax, which is the name of a priest taken from a Greek inscription on a funeral urn. And once you start turning this into game fodder, you can make more of a deal of that and what everybody else in the Society of Roman Knights, uh, what their different pseudonyms are. You can uh, Once you add magic to this, you can create a magical resonance for everybody's uh, name choices. So he's been running around England with his buddies, uh, the Gale brothers, and they do one last great antiquarian tour that takes them from Devonshire all the way up to Hadrian's Wall in 1725. But at some point, the money begins to run out, maybe, or people are like, don't you have a medical degree? Shouldn't you be doing something with that? So he uh, leaves London, moves to Grantham and sets up as a doctor, marries a local girl in 1727. Doctoring in Grantham does not work out for him particularly well, so he talks to his buddy, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who makes him an Anglican priest in 1729, and he gets the living at Stamford, which is a cathedral town, or a, not a cathedral town, but a big church town in Lincolnshire. Right, and because if you're an academic or an intellectual in this period, there are only so many professorships, and if you want to you know, earn income, you also have to get some sort of church position, and which, of course, includes duties as a, as a pastor or, or what have you. But you need that in order to, to live because the uh, otherwise the financial infrastructure isn't there for you. Yeah. And so he winds up settling in very nicely in Stanford. He's got enough money to live. He can build a nice garden. And he stays interested in antiquarian stuff. He stays in the Royal Society. Every now and again, he'll go down to London for a, for a meeting. But he's basically trying to sort of make a go of stuff at Stanford. He sets up something called the Brazen Nose Society to be the local version of the Society of Antiquaries or the Royal Society. Right. And, and we have a record of what they talked about at the first meeting. So they talked about lunar cartography, wasps' nests, and a dog's bladder stone. So essentially it was this podcast. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they had it was set little topics that they would do for a short period and, and move on yep. to something uh, completely unrelated. It was Bill and the Gales talk about stuff in yeah. Stanford. Now, uh, Stukley's biographer, uh, Stuart Piggott, makes a big deal about the shift from pre-churchmen and, and post-churchmen 
and he respects the uh, archaeological work that he did prior to that, and then argues that once he became more of a church politician, that his work became less valuable and and less interesting. And it is always couched that way, because I think other people who've looked at Stukely don't see that bright line between the two phases of his career. And uh, among the people who disagree with Piggott is the sainted Ronald Hutton, who says, no, this is basically all Stukely all the time. He just, you know, spends a little more time doing church stuff. But, you know, his book on Stonehenge, which is years after his ordination, 1740, is as scholarly as anything he wrote before that, and is certainly the most scholarly book on Stonehenge written to that date, and it takes another 140 years before people even begin to get to the point where he was in terms of studying those monuments. Yeah, and nor is he markedly some sort of rationalist or skeptic before then. Right, and he he does leave the Society of Antiquaries in 1740, but it's because he's having a slap fight with them over the dating of Royston Cave, and he's closer to right than they are, spoilers, and also he doesn't pay his dues. Which so, made, uh, tell people what Royston Cave is. Uh, Royston Cave is this chalk cave that was hollowed out in Royston, England, which is in Hertfordshire, and it has got sort of cool carved figures on the walls. They don't look like they were carved by artisans. They look like they were just carved by dudes, which makes people say now, oh, these are Templar caves, and probably it's about a 100 years post-Templar. Other people have said, you know, Druids and Freemasons and Satanists and whoever else is going to carve stuff in a cave. We still don't know because it's pretty difficult to date chalk. But from the sort of the, the, the outfits that the people in the caves are wearing, we think maybe it's closer to the 14th century than it is the Templar times. So anyway, it's a cool cave. And he said it was medieval. And the other guys in the Society of Antiquaries said it was Anglo-Saxon. And he said, it's not Anglo-Saxon. How stupid are you people? I can't, I can't with you. And then he got thrown out. So, right. and also didn't pay his dues. And also didn't pay his dues. But who would pay your dues to a bunch of stupids who say that's an Anglo-Saxon? Who don't know when caves cave? are. Yeah. I ask you. Anyway, he publishes his big Stonehenge book in 1740, which, as I said, is the best book on the topic, bar none, until that time, and is still very respectable, even, you know, by the Victorian time. And he publishes another big book on Avebury, which he calls Avery, because they don't put the the in things at that point, in 1743. That book apparently seems to be a big influence on William Blake, who somehow got a copy and fell hard for Stukely's version of mystical, druid-drenched Celtic England. Right. So we've mentioned Ronald Hutton already. His book, Blood and Mistletoe, is all about what British people thought about druids at different points in their history and how that tells you more about what the issues of the time are Mm -hmm. uh, than it does about druids, because the thing about druids is there's almost nothing reliably known about them. So every time someone thinks up something about druids, it tells them about their current time. And so this leads Stukely to his conclusions about Stonehenge and Druids, which are... Which is, and to Stukely's credit, he doesn't say Druids built Stonehenge. He says pre-Roman Celts built Stonehenge, which, depending on how you define Celts, might or might not be right. I think most historians say they were built by the folk who were there before the Celtic invasion slash migration. But, you know, Stukely didn't know that. And he said, maybe they were guided by the Druids, who, by the way, were Abrahamic monotheists from Phoenicia, led by Hercules. Right, because this is where the ideology comes from. Right. There's a a big question mark, if you're British in the 18th century, which is, how come we got Christianity late when we're British? We're the best. We're the best. We're busy taking over a big chunk of the world and telling them what to do. Surely, we must have had a version of Christianity, at least earlier, uh, and not the one that the Roman Catholics mucked up later. We must have the pure kind. And so that comes to a theory where basically the early Abrahamic patriarchal religion was brought to England in a purer form by the Phoenicians, maybe, who taught it to the Druids, maybe. Right. And the Druids then later deduced the Trinity, which Stukely says you can see right here in the layout of Avebury. It's obviously the Christian 
sign of the serpent shedding its skin. It's all very clear if you look at how these stones are laid out. And again, he doesn't move the stones. He draws the stones in the position they are. In fact, he had spent much of his life complaining that people were knocking the stones over and doing his best to write down where they were. He went and talked to people. Where was that stone in your grandfather's time? And this was a problem at Avery, particularly. Yeah, it was, it was a big problem at Avery. It also happened at Stonehenge, but it really happened at Avery because it's not as obvious that it's this, you know, interlocked, you know, enormous scale monument. But it happened, you know, Hadrian's Wall people were pulling stuff out to build stuff with. And he was buddies with Princess Augusta, and he kept saying, you should have an edict that people can't do that to these important British monuments that demonstrate, by the way, that we were all Christians back in ancient times. Right. So he's a precursor of uh, British heritage as well. Right. And he he was a um, uh, exponent of what is often called Prisca Theologia, the notion that before the revelation of Christ, very, very smart and virtuous people could figure out Christianity because, again, reason exists to lead you toward God. And so, you know, you begin to say, like Stukely did, well, Plato was clearly a Christian. I personally would have picked Aristotle if I'm making stuff up, but that's just me. And so he is in that belief that these sort of Druids, who of course were guided by people from Phoenicia, were able to deduce the Trinity, and that that's why there's all this Trinitarian stuff that is in the antiquarian ruins that you can see. Or, if you're a Trinitarian and you look at a pattern, you see a pattern. He does try to deduce the date of Stonehenge based on Edmund Halley's uh, observations of the magnetic shifts of the Earth's poles. And so he gets a date for Stonehenge of 460 BC and Avebury of 1860 BC, which I think it's kind of impressive. He's wrong both times, but he's got Avebury at least into the right scale of things. And the main sarsen henches of both areas are probably built circa 2500 BC, but that's not so far from 1860 as all that. Right. And it's a Neolithic culture that we know yeah. next and nothing about. He's at least not saying it was the Romans, which is what people in his time were saying. Yes. Anyway, after all of this, he then becomes rector of St. George the Martyr in London. In 1747, he moves back to London in 1748 to run St. George the Martyr. By now, he's, I think, sort of an old fuddy-duddy to a lot of the upcoming even more deist intellectuals, and they sort of don't take him seriously. He stops getting invited to Royal Society meetings, and when he submits papers, they don't get published. So he is somewhat on the downswing. He does fall for a notorious hoax, the description of Britain, which was a pretend map and Roman chronicle of Britain passed down by an imaginary monk. It seemed like really good information. People wanted it to be true. It was great information. It, uh, as Stukely said, this has information about hundreds of places we didn't know anything about, which might have been a red flag. Right. Again, well, like a lot of people who get gulled, he was skeptical at first, and his initial skepticism helped convince him it was correct. Right. But again, in his defense, everyone in the study of British history also gulled by Charles Bertram. Then later... They, you know, tried to pretend they'd all seen through it, but no, they did not. In 1756, a giant earthquake nearly wipes out the city of Lisbon, which turns his mind to the question of earthquakes. So he writes The Philosophy of Earthquakes, which again combines why does God send earthquakes to a Catholic but otherwise inoffensive city like Lisbon, but also how do earthquakes happen? And then he does uh, another work on Roman coins, which is one of his oldest, oldest interests. As a little boy, he picked up Roman coins out of a ruin and was fascinated by it. So that sort of, you know, ties his life together in a neat little bow. And then he dies of a stroke in 1765. So that is the story of William Stukeley, father of British archaeology, one of the greatest of British antiquarians. And as far as we can tell from this remove, a pretty all right dude. So if you're adding magic uh, to the world in a game that's set in 18th century uh, and uh, partially in uh, Britain. It stands to reason that you would uh, run into Stukely, perhaps at Stonehenge or at Avery. You might be typical player characters. Maybe you're the one stealing the stones for your right. own purpose, and he's the one uh, trying to stop you. So he might be the respectable fuddy-duddy uh, trying to stop you from doing whatever it is you need to do to Thwart Neralathotep or the devil or whoever it is who's uh, you need to throw magic stones at. Yeah, or you might need his observations of what Avebury was like a hundred years ago in order to reconstruct the magic circle to, you know, pen up Yog Sothoth or do whatever it is you need to do. He could be a, uh, a source and you just have to sort of put everything in the tones of 
pious early Christianity, not in tones of, oh, the Cthulhu mythos exists and everything's a blasted nihilist ruin, but we still need your book. And uh, his expertise on earthquakes, he could be someone that you uh, come to uh, if you're fighting earthquake-causing vampires, which, of course, we know is one of their lesser-known but more devastating attacks. Right. Certainly uh, connected to them, as Dracula demonstrates over and over again. Uh, You might be dealing with any kind of a ghost or monster from the British past, in which case he would have useful advice and... Holy water. <laughs> you know, that's not bad. He's a scholar priest, so he's got yeah. that's two visits in one. He's multi-class. You can do both A and B. Exactly. And that was, I guess, what Stukely did. He didn't want to make the hard choice. He wanted to do both, and he could. So he did. Well, speaking of uh, doing all of the choices, I think our next choice is another hut, and it is behind this exciting commercial. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathe tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The glow of the Orthicon tube. The high piping voices of British children. And, yeah, probably a vampire. Welcome us into... The Horror Hut, where beloved show sponsor John Kavalik wants to know about the BBC's notorious missing horror show, Late Night Horror. And he points us to a very lovely and actually very in-depth for Atlas Obscura article on the Late Night Horror phenomenon, which, very briefly, it was a TV show, ran on BBC Two for a little more than a month in 1968, six episodes. Yes, which of course is a whole season for British TV. That's a that's a lot of episodes. For for Britain, this was a rock solid success. Right. And and what this is this story is about right. is the horrible terror of the way the BBC erased television shows before <laughs> anyone knew that we would want to keep television shows on hand because videotape was very expensive and there was no such thing as home video of any kind. Mm-hmm. There was no VHS, let alone discs or uh, streaming. So it uh, was just the done thing, as Doctor Who fans know, mm-hmm. to erase things that you weren't going to rescreen. And they decided not to rescreen Late Night Horror, or six episodes after they, they played a couple of times. But whenever they played, they got a lot of complaints and the BBC, because it's a quasi-government agency, like had, has to publish the complaints that it gets. And the British people in general uh, have a solid strata of complaint writers. Yeah. And so the thing about this show was it was in color. And so was the gore. There was actual, you know, blood back in a much more sedate era of, you know, horror f- cinema. But uh, the guy who uh, created and produced it, Ken, was a bit of a showman. And he wanted to put horror in capital letters. Yeah. He was um, a guy named Harry Moore, and his instructions to the showrunner, I think, could stand as instructions to us all. Blood, guts, thunder, lightning, eyeballs, dark corners, cobwebs, close-ups, faces, 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 and above all, excitement. 
and uh, this was the first color horror series in the UK. Hammer Films had been for a decade demonstrating what exactly you could do with red blood in terms of exciting and thrilling people on the screen, even before it starts dripping onto Ingrid Pitt. You've got all manner of other cool stuff you can do with blood, and Harry Moore wants to do all of it. As I say, there's six episodes, and, you know, knowing nothing about Harry Moore except that he made this show, I have to say, well done, Harry Moore, because the six episodes are No Such Thing as a Vampire, based on the Richard Matheson story, starred Andrew Keir, by the way, for Quatermass fans, uh, William and Mary, based on the Roald Dahl story, The Corpse Can't Play, which was written by the less known but very famous John F. Burke, the horror writer. And uh, The Corpse Can't Play, by the way, is the episode that they recovered in 2016 from a foreign black and white print that was sent overseas. It was a color show in Britain, but they would do black and white versions for markets that didn't have color TVs. Right. And again, Doctor Who people, this is this lore is deeply inscribed in them because when they suddenly recover a lost episode of Doctor Who, it's usually found somewhere in Africa because they used to uh, play, uh, obviously they played this show and that one in Africa and they would ship prints to them, but shipping them back, nobody wanted the prints back afterwards. So, you know, somewhere there may be a basement in, you know, Nairobi or, or uh, somewhere where, you know, more episodes of this or more Doctor Who episodes might someday turn up and they, they occasionally do. Yeah. The Triumph of Death, based on the H. Russell Wakefield story, starring Claire Bloom as Prunella, the the mean woman uh, who is the main character of Triumph of Death. The Bells of Hell, based on Robert Aikman's Ringing the Changes. And The Kiss of Blood, based on a admittedly second-rate Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Case of Lady Sanix. And so, again, obviously British horror stories is a big, deep field to play in, but Wakefield, Matheson, Dahl, Aikman, that's great. And second tier Doyle and Burke, nothing to sneeze at, really. You know, I don't know that there are six episodes in a row of even a great American horror show that can have that kind of lineage. Now, whether or not they delivered on it in the sort of cheap BBC production values that are hallmark of people who are, speaking of Doctor Who fans, getting to watch, we can only watch one of them. The Corpse Can't Play is available on DVD, which I did not watch for this. But it does not sound like it set new new records in terms of the presentation of TV horror when people watch it today. They're right. like, oh, that, that was a lot scarier the, when I was the four. The mystique lies in its yeah. unavailability. Its unavailability, as explained, is non-mysterious. Right. And the fact that everyone who remembers it was probably being traumatized as a five-year-old and would have been traumatized by anything as a five-year-old because that's how five-year-olds work. Right. Because, of course, Doctor Who is super traumatizing, right. too, yeah. when you're a five-year-old. So, but of course... The idea of the horror media that is suppressed and has to vanish, of course, uh, goes all the way back to Chambers mm -hmm. and uh, the idea of the King in Yellow play. So this is a, an echo of that in real life. You have an exciting idea that you can chase down copies of a lost show through the collector's market that might pop up. There's a whole saga around the finding of the corpse can't play it, like surfaced on eBay 20 years ago and then disappeared and then that print was located again you know decades later when that private collector you know let it surface and so that gives you all sorts of things for your investigators to do in the present day and another uh, way of course around this is to put it in fall of delta green uh, where uh, you are there for the production of the episode that causes you uh, in concert with uh, british intelligence to call for the uh, suppression uh, of the seventh episode and mm. then later just just for safety's sake after it runs a couple more times presumably the you know the whole thing gets shut down because you know why why let loose ends play with people's sanity or maybe the uh, pisces is actually letting the horror at oak dean written by young upcoming scribe brian lumley air on british tv as part of a an attempt to lure various cultists out of the woodwork so they can shut them down. And you as uh, Delta green are saying, no, that's a terrible idea. You're still broadcasting this horrific mythos imagery. We're going to shut you down. And it's your involvement that eventually, you know, 
you're in a battle back and forth with Pisces, and the goal is to get BBC A not to notice anything, but B to shut down the show. And I think that's a more fun than if you and Pisces are working together to shut it down. I think it's more fun if the British are doing something wrong and stupid, and you're trying to stop it. So that's uh, all sorts of uh, different premises that you can use to build on this basic enticing idea of a forbidden and forgotten horror show. So it's time for us to move on in this all hut episode to the final head of the episode. Exercise the choice to keep this podcast alive by joining such beloved Patreon backers as David Mascari, Fred Kish, Jeremy French, John Kingdon, and Kevin J. Maroney. It's time once more to enter that most ill-defined of huts, the one where crackpotism crosses with the paranormal and uh, there's an alien. Oh, no, not just one alien, but two aliens over in the corner sharing a kombucha. We look out the window. There's an alien big cat screaming on the moor. And this time around, both the alien big cat and the aliens sort of have a cross section of interest here because we're going to talk about a local cryptid that was unknown to me until uh, someone brought it to my attention, which shows you what a big footprint the Cabbage Town Tunnel Monster has put on the psyche of Toronto, because a mere few years, six years before I moved to Toronto, there was a cryptid sighting, and I'd never heard of it until just now. Well, I mean, you knew about Cabbage Town, though. Cabbage Town, of course, is a well-known neighborhood in Toronto. I could walk to the intersection uh, near where this creature was sighted. So so this is a one-off cryptid. There's one sighting. The Source is from the Sunday Sun. Uh, The Toronto Sun is our tabloid newspaper. So just put that in perspective as well. Mm -hmm. But supposedly, they heard from somebody or heard from somebody that the experiencer had seen this thing and went to talk to him about it. So he wasn't coming forward because, of course, you wouldn't come forward in Cabbage Town or any other a neighborhood in Toronto to tell people you'd seen a cryptid. That's not, that's not our way. But once the newspaper comes to ask, you have to say, yes, I saw a cryptid. Right. Another confusing thing about this is Cabbage Town Tunnel Monster. It's like, what tunnel are you talking about? It turns out it's a Cabbage Town Fisher Monster or like a Cabbage Town hole in an alleyway that goes down to the sewer monster. But I guess those aren't as tabloidy sort of names as Tunnel Monster. It takes it takes more to, you know, fit it on a shirt, I think. Right. Uh, so to set the scene, Cabbage Town then is now is a downtown neighborhood. And it is where the uh, wealthy and the struggling coexist uneasily. There are people who, uh, well-to-do folks who live in expensive homes. And then there are people who are having a, a rough economic time of it. And they're jostled up. Together, even today, it's the home of an even more terrifying monster, Nimbyism. Mm. But can someone named Ernest encountered uh, what he describes as a, a legit, freaky, one-of-a-kind creature when he heard a weird noise and went into the alleyway next to his house and noticed that there was sort of a, a hole there uh, blocked partially by concrete. And that hole led to, as he says, a tunnel. Yeah, the uh, this is August of 1978 to set the scene. The guy's name is Ernest. He's a married man, a figure of stability in the community, one imagines. Doesn't want it, you know, brooded about that he's seen a cryptid. But when a kitten is lost, Ernest steps up. And this is, of course, your instant moment of sympathy with Ernest. He is missing a kitten. He worries that it might be down at the bottom of their weird broken fire escape, which goes down into a, a shaft. And at the bottom of the shaft, concrete hadn't fallen yet. It was just this sort of weird hole. And he thought, I will go see if the kitten has made its way into this weird hole. And as he's going into the shaft, he, you know, gets to the hole. He walks in about 10 feet in, he says. He heard strange noises like animals in pain. And then he saw the Cabbage Town Tunnel Monster. It was a three foot long, 30 pounds, slate gray fur, long, large teeth. 
and orange red slanted eyes. And this is bad enough. You're like, this is a, a rabid raccoon or a really big rat. And I just can't judge sizes in the it, dark. It's a raccoon. Well, I was going to get to the fun running later. It's a raccoon. It's a raccoon. Well, <laughs> Robin, you say that now, but has a raccoon ever said to you, go away, go away in a hissing voice? Which, in a sentence with no sibilance, is an accomplishment. I don't think you have. I think one can, if you've ever heard the hiss of a raccoon, and you're freaked out missing your kitten, and you're suddenly in a hole that you didn't know was in the alleyway next to your house. Mm -hmm. If there's something weird that you see in Toronto that's approximately 30 pounds... Uh I'm sorry. It's a yeah, you think it was a raccoon with big teeth and a bad attitude? I, I think it's a raccoon being somewhat misperceived by someone who perhaps is uh, having... I'm not saying there's no mystical layer upon the raccoon, but I'm saying it's a raccoon. You're saying it's a raccoon. All right. Well, we shan't fun ruin yet. I just Because Ernie, Ernest, is shaking with fear when he returns from the sighting. His wife you know, notes his, his pallid demeanor, etc., as she assures the reporter, sure, he ties one on now and again, but he hadn't drunk at all that day. So there you go. Good wife backing up her husband. But when he brought the reporter back down, this is when the concrete had fallen. And so they have to sort of skin around that. They find a dead cat. Yeah, the or, concrete mysteriously fell in the alleyway near the hole near his house. Yep. And they found a, a dead cat skeleton in the area, but they didn't see any uh, tunnel monster. And... Ernie was obviously not was not happy about this reexamination, so they go back. The reporter talks to the sewer people, and the sewer people say, "Well, it doesn't connect to the sewers on purpose." Right. And, and by that, you mean Toronto Public Works, not the yeah. weird mole man. No, he didn't talk to mole men. He talked yeah. to the people whose job it is to maintain the uh, sturdy and efficient Toronto sewer system. Right, which and, in some cases connect to old, buried underground creeks, which is a right. great detail and it's cool and allows you to have mystical things happen uh the house where we live is just steps away from it like a buried bridge for example as part of what is called the garrison creek complex so uh, it it is a cool idea that there's this buried river and creek system that was then converted into the basis of the uh, sewer system and you you see that in in london as well there's tons and tons of rivers that became sewers that are now forgotten but Toronto, as befits a British colony city, likewise. So as I say, the uh, public works guy said that that tunnel doesn't, it's not on the map, but it might be subsidence uh, in the area caused by all these creeks running under the ground and that it might hook up to the sewers. He couldn't say, but he doesn't think so. Yes. The quote in in the piece from the public works person is also very helpful to the mood of the piece. And so, yeah, yeah, right. I don't. There are some things there that I wouldn't want to have to deal with, something like that. And uh, I wouldn't go down there myself alone, no, sir. No, yes. So anyway, the other theory besides fun ruining raccoons is that it's the Meme Gwezi, which is the river spirit of Anishinaabe lore. They're child sized and hairy, and they have a buzzing voice, which I think is pretty. Strong. I I think that if you're looking for a thing that this might be besides, yes, a raccoon, it could be a Mamegwezi. Although, for all I know, Mamegwezis take the shape of raccoons. I'm not the expert. I bet they do. (laughs) Right. But obviously, as you say, we've got all these buried creeks. River spirits used to be part of those creeks. They were the genie Loki of those creeks. They get buried up. Now they're subterranean river spirits, and they probably have a bad attitude about it. And I don't blame them myself. Right. And I'm not saying that Toronto raccoons aren't magical. Yeah. Some of them are friends with the magic beaver. So exactly. it could be a raccoon spirit disliking the fact that you're- A raccoon uh, manitou. Yeah. As moving through the city mysteriously through the sewers and the underground area, because raccoons are very territorial on the surface, but perhaps they- give each other a free pass to move around uh, underneath. So uh, they could be doing all sorts of exciting uh, magical things. But as cryptids go, I think this is possibly a weird hallucination that you encounter as you're going down into uh, pursue some sort of mystery. And, And in the Yellow Kings, this is normal now segment. There are weird magical raccoons because I come from Toronto and you can encounter strange raccoons that wear a different mask, a pallid mask, if you will, and are a harbinger of uh, strange things uh, on the loose. And so uh, this could be sort of an early indication of uh, a reality slip. And you could definitely have a a tunnel that suddenly appears in an ordinary 
alleyway that you can walk to that's on Google Maps. And then the next time there's concrete blocking the path and you're not sure if, did I go down that? This concrete looks like it's been there for a long time, but I'm pretty sure we went down there and had this whole thing. And now it's just a regular hole. What's going on there? So it could absolutely be a, uh, a perhaps raccoon-related break in reality, because definitely the person who experienced this, there was something weird and numinous going on. So I think it's uh, possibly a good example of a, an ultra-terrestrial realm overriding ours, or again, a, a little bit of Carcosa uh, slipping in in an otherwise normal environment. Now, was there a, a big disaster or otherwise paranormal event in Toronto in the you know, 1978-79 era that we can point, you know, Mothman to Silver Bridge type situation? It is the same sort of general area and time of a particularly nasty child murder. Ooh, disgusting. <laughs> so that's sort of a little too horrible for yeah. uh, to also have a fun cryptid. Yeah, if, you, if your urban horror game is really about the horror, then maybe look into that. But on the other yeah. hand... It's still weird. Like, you could possibly do a realistic, gritty horror thing that pointed to the Emmanuel Jacks murder, but I would not bring a uh, cryptid into it as well. Right. So with that aesthetic note established, I think that we can leave the Cabbage Town Tunnel Monster to hiss, go away, and take their advice and go away and return in a week with a whole different bunch of segments, many of which take place above ground, I anticipate. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Arc Dream. Dork Tower and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop the erasure of this podcast tapes by joining beloved backers. Chris McCarthy. Dan O'Hanlon. Eric Parks. Evan Hughes. And Jason Sullivan. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Grab our latest design, Turn Undead, onto the complex flavor profiles of the craft cocktail movement. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Blue Sky, he's RobinDLaws.Bisky.Social. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>